0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde.
0: It's Thursday, April fifteenth, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
2: COVID vaccines, of course. This week, it's Johnson & Johnson in some trouble due to some rare but serious clotting episodes. Science journalist Kai Kupferschmidt joins us to explain what's happening.
1: Then biotech analyst Josh Shimmer joins us to discuss why the drug industry has had such a hard time coming up with treatments for COVID-19.
2: But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus Macaulay from STAT. A silver lining of the pandemic is the rapid acceleration of digital health and telemedicine. I'm here with Manoj Narayanan, the CTO of Real Chemistry, a digitally connected global health innovation company. Manoj, your team recently published a report about how doctors' digital behaviors have changed during this digital health renaissance. Tell us about that. Thanks, Angus.
3: According to a recent survey of 500 doctors, we learned a tremendous amount about how physicians' online and offline behaviors are changing. As more and more doctors spend time online in their professional and personal lives, how we reach them in the right place, with the right message, at the right time, is more complex today than ever before.
2: Thanks, Manoj. To learn more, visit go.realchemistry.com. We're in a weird stretch where it feels like each week we lead this podcast with another unexpected volatile development involving
1: COVID vaccines. This time, trouble has come for Johnson & Johnson. On Tuesday, the FDA and the CDC urged states to temporarily halt vaccinations with the J&J COVID-19 vaccine because of concerns about a rare but serious clotting problem seen in some people who had received the vaccine.
0: On Wednesday, a committee of independent experts was brought together to examine the clotting issue further. Six cases have been identified and J&J indicated a possible seventh is being investigated. One person has died. At the end of the meeting, the experts declined to vote on whether or not use of the J&J vaccine should resume. Many members of the committee said they had too little information to be able to estimate the benefits and risks of the vaccine or to recommend its use be restricted to people in certain age groups. That means the J&J vaccine pause is likely to continue for at least another week to 10 days while more data are gathered and analyzed.
2: Joining us to help better understand this clotting issue and its implications for the J&J vaccine, both here in the US and abroad, is Kai Kupferschmidt. He's a science journalist and contributing correspondent to Science Magazine based in
1: Berlin, Germany. Kai, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. So, Kai, you've done some excellent reporting in in recent days about the possible link between this rare clotting disorder that's observed and certain COVID-19 vaccines, namely the AstraZeneca vaccine and now possibly the J&J vaccine. So, you know, based on the reporting you've done, what appears to be happening biologically in these cases?
3: Yeah, that's uh, that's a really difficult question. I mean, um, first of all, I should say that, that you know, all of this reporting has been done with my colleague Gretchen Vogel, also, also here in Berlin. And um, basically, I think the phase that we're in is one where we're slowly going through different hypotheses and trying to shoot them down one by one in terms of what might be causing this. Now, one of the first things I think, Though you have to realize is what we do know is that these patients who have these rare complications seem to have antibodies against platelet factor 4. And this is something that is very similar to um, a disease that we know, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or HIT. And that's kind of the starting point for a lot of these scientists investigating what might be happening. Now, in heparin-induced induced thrombocytopenia, you get these PF4 antibodies because the PF4 is a small molecule that's positively charged. Heparin is a large molecule that's negatively charged. And the idea is that in some patients, when they get heparin, the PF4 binds to the heparin and that makes it more visible to the immune system. And so the immune system starts producing antibodies against PF4. That leads to the platelets being cross-linked and activated. And so you get this clotting. That's what kind of starts this. The big question now is how does a vaccine in the absence of heparin produce this picture? And the first basic idea was, well, we do know that in COVID-19, people sometimes have blood clots and possibly that has to do with a spike protein. So maybe all that's happening is that the body sees the spike protein, produces antibodies against it. And then these antibodies just happen to also recognize PF4 because there's maybe some similarities there. This is a hypothesis that was actually tested. It's just a preprint at the moment. But basically, the researchers didn't see this as happening. So they didn't see that, for instance, the antibodies from people who had had COVID-19 recognized PF4. Now, there's a few other hypotheses. One that I find quite interesting is that maybe the DNA that is being shuttled into cells from the through the adenovirus in, in AstraZeneca, for instance maybe that acts like heparin because DNA2 is a large molecule that's negatively charged. Um, And the question there is, is there really any free DNA in, in the vaccine? I mean, normally it should be contained within the adenoviruses, But of course, there's, I think, 50 billion particles in one dose of the vaccine. So possibly some of those break open and then you have some of this negatively charged DNA. And possibly that's what leads to this. Again, it's just a hypothesis at the moment. People have some really interesting, different ideas about what would be causing it. And in some ways, the Johnson & Johnson signal we're seeing now and questions about the other vaccines that use adenovirus will be one part of the puzzle because it might help us to understand, okay, is it the vector? Is it something else in these vaccines? So the more we can tease apart which vaccines are causing this and which vaccines aren't, it it gives us clues as to what the mechanism can be and what it can't be.
0: Is there a group that's been identified to be at higher risk of these unique clots? And does that perhaps say anything about the biological underpinnings of what's going on?
3: Right. I mean, that's been the debate in Europe um, for a few weeks now because we did see a lot more of these rare clotting cases in women. But then one of the big problems here was that it wasn't quite clear how many men and women were vaccinated with AstraZeneca in the first place. So because of the way that the recommendations were at first in Europe, it was actually quite a lot of women. So I think it was Norway, for instance, had five cases, four of them in women, and one of them was a man. And when they looked at who they actually vaccinated, they found that they vaccinated exactly 80% of women and 20% men with AstraZeneca. So so that was exactly in line with that. Now, in the U.S., um, you have these six cases that have been found, which are all in women between 18 and 50 years of age. So, again, it looks like there might be a signal. But certainly the European Medicines Agency so far has always said the data isn't good enough at the moment to say with any certainty that there's one particular group that's at higher risk. And that's what makes this so difficult. But the hope is that as we get more data, we might be able to actually say, well, maybe it is a fact that women are much more likely to have this, for instance.
2: And Kai, quantifying the risk has been a big part of the discussion this week. You know, like, as we said, we know that there are six confirmed cases involving the J&J vaccine, possibly a seventh. But out of how many people vaccinated is that? (laughs)
3: <laughs> that's that's the, the big question. Is about how, what do you actually compare it to, right? There's, I think, 7 million people have been vaccinated with Johnson & Johnson. So one way of looking at it is, okay, six cases and 7 million vaccinees. That's, you know, that sounds like not a lot. Then you can say, well, you know, what about women in that age group who actually showed these side effects? And then you get to a much smaller group. The other thing you can do is to say, well... You know, those 7 million vaccines, roughly half of them um, were given in the 14 days leading up to this decision. So in that half of the group, you wouldn't actually expect to have seen the cases yet, the CVST cases. So even if you take across the population, you would probably have to say it's six cases out of 3.5 million people that have been vaccinated. Um, but but the denominator here is a big question. And then, of course, the other question is, so have people look closely enough? We do see this a lot. It's called stimulated reporting. The fact that once you actually alert people to certain side effects, that more cases come in simply because suddenly doctors will say, hey, wait a minute, you know, uh, this person had this and, and actually had been vaccinated just before. So maybe there is a connection when they didn't see one before. So, I mean, this is one reason for the pause, of course, is that they kind of want to get a clearer handle on what the data actually says. And then there's still a lot of difficult decisions to be made. But for now, even just getting these two numbers of, you know, how many cases do we have and what's the overall population we should be putting this in relation to? That's a really hard thing to do. And I find it fascinating how how complicated something, you know, supposedly simple like that can be.
1: So speaking of that pause, there was a lot of criticism this week for the FDA and the CDC for the way they communicated the clotting risk and recommended suspension of the J&J vaccine. Having watched Wednesday's panel and, and kind of seeing how things have played out in public, do you feel like the process is working the way that it should, that, that you know, the powers that be are are doing what they ought to do in the name of transparency?
3: Um. So I think, you know, looking at this from Europe, the thing that struck me the most about Wednesday's meeting was its transparency, how openly data was discussed and, and also the arguments. Um, we haven't seen that at all in Europe. I mean, to me, this was next level. We In Europe, the EMA, you know, meets and then you get a press conference afterwards with a few people and they say a few numbers and that's basically it. So to me, certainly, the meeting on Wednesday, you know, if we don't talk about the result for a second, just about the process, I thought that the process was amazing to see play out. I think that anybody who really watches that and kind of takes the time to try and understand what people are grappling with and what the complexities are should come away from it saying, wow, you know, this is this is an amazing process and it seems to work. I mean, most of the criticism seems to be that actually the safety signal is comparatively small in relation to the risk from COVID-19. And that's why maybe we shouldn't be, you know, maybe this is an overreaction. But, you know, in some ways, these are the people who are in charge of making sure that vaccines are safe. And I think to a lot of people, it should be reassuring in some ways that they are on the side of caution uh, rather than the other way around. And I do wonder what the counterfactual here would be. I mean, you know, you can't keep these cases secret, obviously. I mean, you need to alert The doctors to it and just in general I think you know it's everybody's right to to know this data and so if you just announce that you know you have a suspicion that maybe in a few very very rare cases the vaccine is actually killing healthy young women but you're not going to pause it that's that's a really hard one to communicate I think so I have a lot of sympathy for the decision To say, okay, let's have a quick pause, let's alert everybody, let's make sure doctors are also kind of aware of this and know how to treat these patients if they come. The question is, how long do you do that? And at what point do you decide that the benefits here do outweigh the risks?
0: One of the reasons we were so excited to get to talk with you, in addition to obviously just your amazing science reporting on all of this, is that you're also um, in a part of the world that might be sort of seeing what we might start to see here in the United States. With the AstraZeneca vaccine, many governments there have had these age-based restrictions and they've gone through kind of these back and forths over the the risk of these clots. Has that led to hesitancy there? Um, are, are people still willing to get the AstraZeneca vaccine and what do you think the situation might be in the United States with the J&J vaccine around hesitancy um if and when you know it proceeds here how does this likely play out in terms of confidence in that vaccine
3: I think that's really hard to answer because it is so depending on the context and even in Europe it's different depending on the countries um so, for instance, you know, the UK has decided um, not to vaccinate people younger than 30 with AstraZeneca. In Germany, it's, you know, people under 60 aren't vaccinated with it. I, I think France has maybe 55. I'm not even sure. It's it's different from country to country. And then, of course, Denmark has decided not to restart vaccination with, with this vaccine at all. So, you know, people come to different conclusions. And that, of course, also changes how people in those countries perceive the risks um i have seen people um talk about you know um surveys in the us that say oh look you know a lot more people now think that maybe the johnson johnson vaccine isn't safe than thought that 3 days ago i mean that's kind of a no brainer i mean basically the the regulatory agency said maybe this isn't safe there is a safety signal here of course you'd expect in the short term for people to say that the big question is If the regulatory agency or if in in the US, if the FDA and the CDC decide to restart vaccinations and maybe restart it only in certain groups, how how much are people willing to then go along with that again? That is an open question. And I think it's also, again, this is so complex because you can talk about people's perception of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. That's important. But then there's also how do people perceive the safety of the COVID-19 vaccines in general? Does that go up or down? What about people's perception of safety about vaccines in general? What about people's trust in the regulatory agencies that decide on the safety of vaccines in general? So I think there's a lot more at play than whether after this, the likelihood that people will want to get Johnson & Johnson, you know, goes down a lot or goes down a little, or maybe, you know, is unchanged. I think that's a bit of a red herring if you look just at that one part of the picture.
2: So Kai, what about the other adenovirus-based uh, vaccines, like like Sputnik, out of Russia, can, you know, Um, You know, do we are we seeing clotting episodes come out come out or come out of those vaccines? And and you know, will Russia, for instance, report these clots in the same way as we as we as we've seen in other places?
3: This is something that everybody's wondering about. Um, so we haven't had reports for the CanSino or the Sputnik V vaccine of these these rare blood clotting um, events. Um. If you look at the the viruses that they use, so, of course, AstraZeneca uses a chimp adenovirus, which is a little bit different from the adenovirus, the human adenovirus that Johnson & Johnson uses. But the Johnson & Johnson adenovirus is exactly the same as one of the two shots that is in the Sputnik V vaccine. So, you know... (laughs) You would expect whatever you see in Johnson & Johnson to also show up in Sputnik V if that's not the case. And the question is how much you trust that signal to be detected in the countries where this is currently being given. There is a possibility that we're going to end up not seeing it in Sputnik V. And Sputnik, um, the makers of Sputnik V actually put out a press release yesterday arguing that they go through certain uh, steps of purifying their vaccine, which might reduce the risk. My kind of null hypothesis, my my assumption would still be that I would expect the same picture to emerge over time in Sputnik V if we pay the same kind of close attention to it as we've done to the other two vaccines now. But that's an assumption. And, you know, science, I mean, the immune system is, is fiendishly complex and you can never rule out that there's um, things that since we don't understand the mechanism yet, you can't really rule out that there are things that that distinguish these two but for me at the moment, the assumption is that these adenovirus vectors, all of them probably have a similar safety profile when it comes to this.
1: So on the topic of, you know, public health authorities trying to assuage fears, people who've been recently vaccinated with J&J shot are quite likely worried about developing this very rare um, complication. But is there clarity from, from doctors as to how to look out for this side effect and how to treat it once it's detected?
3: This is one of the complications here. Is that the um, if you look at the symptoms that these six patients presented with in the U.S., it's basically severe headache is the kind of the, the common denominator there. That's of course a very unspecific signal. Um, that's also one reason why it's so important to get people to understand what they need to do in order to decide whether these patients might actually be experiencing these side effects. And the thrombocytopenia, the low platelet count is a really important diagnostic tool here, I think. But in general, um, I think, you know, this is still very, very rare. So when people have asked me, hey, I got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine a few days ago, Um, I'm really, really worried, you know, how worried do I need to be? I usually say, I don't think you need to lead. I don't think you need to lose sleep over this. I do think this, you know, the regulatory authorities need to lose sleep over this. That's their job. But um, I think for the individual, it's still very, very rare. But yeah, certainly, you know, this does create a lot of uncomfortable time for people who have a headache. And in the, you know, vast amount of cases, that's gonna have nothing to do with the vaccine or with um or with this rare complication from it. Or the um, the message has been that if you get really severe headaches a few days after the vaccine, um, then it might be worth going to a doctor and, and checking it out.
0: I got an mRNA vaccine yesterday and I have a headache right now, but seems unlikely to be a problem.
3: I have a headache every third day of this pandemic. <laughs> and I, you know, and I haven't had a vaccine yet. So, yeah.
0: Well, Kai, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Pleasure. Thank you.
0: The pandemic has shined a spotlight on the biopharmaceuticals industry, proving its value through the speed of vaccine development to a society that ranked it even lower in its esteem than the federal government.
2: But when it comes to drugs for COVID, how has the industry performed? Josh Schimmer has been analyzing the industry for decades now with the firm Evercore ISI, and he was early to flagging the risks of this new virus in the beginning of 2020. He wrote in a research note that he has, quote, very mixed feelings about how the biotech industry delivered during the pandemic.
1: And we were intrigued by that, so we invited Josh on the show. Josh, welcome to The Read Out Loud.
4: Thank you so much for, for inviting me. I'm such a huge fan of, of all of your work.
0: Oh, that's like the nicest hello we've had. Thanks, Josh. Um, so, <laughs> so Josh, even before we saw how the last year actually played out, you predicted that clinical trial data for COVID therapeutics would be a mess. Why did you expect that at the outset?
4: I think if you look at the history of development of antivirals, and and if you consider the number of antivirals we actually have on the market, which is very few, and and appreciate just how little we really understand about that intersection of virology and immunology, uh, and, and how difficult those trials can can be to run in the first place because we're looking at such heterogeneous patients, and that is is evident you know, just in the wide spectrum of how COVID presents, from asymptomatic to, to catastrophic. And trying to navigate through all that with fairly murky science and, and you know, various mechanisms for which we're, we're not entirely sure if they're going to be aligned with, with the underlying biology kind of had a sense that this was going to be a lot trickier on the therapeutic side, much more straightforward on the vaccine side, though.
2: And Josh, unfortunately, you, know, you were right for the most part. Uh, you, you say report after report of nearly useless trial data has been trumpeted as success. Uh, you know, We're not asking you to name names, um, unless you really want to, but can you give us some of the broad
4: examples? Most patients recover you know, and very successfully and often very rapidly. And so when you have a small data set, it's really hard to tease out a therapeutic effect. And as, as companies are, are generating these data sets, you know, they bring their own biases, obviously. Right? They, they may be um, focusing on what's in the news and, and compared to what they're hearing uh, in, in terms of what, what the expected outcomes would be, they may be very excited that their trial data is differentiating from that kind of natural history control that they've determined. But the reality is when you step back and look at all this variability Teasing out signal from noise in a small trial is is incredibly hard. Miraculous recoveries of COVID happen, and they happen often. And so it's really, really challenging to to discern a treatment effect. And you can understand then why companies may be looking at their data saying, wow, isn't this exciting? But for those of us who are a little bit more experienced looking at data, trying to figure out, okay, is is this a real signal or could this be noise? it can be very frustrating. And, and oftentimes, you know, you see that frustration turn into hostility as well. It, it almost feels like you're on opposite sides of some battlefield with, with the data in the middle trying to convince each other or, and everyone around you what, what you're actually seeing. And you know, I think the truth is, is that as, as the data is unfolded, there have been way more failures than successes. And that's evident in the fact of how many drugs do we have approved? it might have been a little hard to predict a priori what was going to work because we don't have as good an understanding of biology as we need. And so we did need to throw a lot of spaghetti against the COVID window and just kind of see what was going to stick. And, and, and I think part of the challenge is that the biotech industry is so vast now. We've had so many companies throw in their spaghetti you know, against, that, against that window, and it's almost getting in their way of finding those pieces that are really going to
1: stick. Well, to that point, um, acting FDA Commissioner Janet Woodcock has said similar things about the spaghetti situation, basically that um, just 6% of all the clinical trials done for COVID therapeutics would yield data that the FDA would actually consider actionable. So you, you kind of touched on this earlier, but whose responsibility is it to organize this system better? You know, it's hard not to look at what's played out here in the contrast to in the United Kingdom, where the recovery trial was this large and 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 well-run um, series of studies that has yielded some some what seems like pretty convincing data, positive and negative, for various therapeutics.
4: You know, if, if we want to centralize it, it needs to be centralized. It needs to be government-mandated, government-run. And that also means run by people. And so now we're going to have to put our faith and trust into those people to pick and choose of all the mechanisms you know which which are most, most robust, and you know I'm sure we you know if the if the country wanted to find those right people we we could assemble that, but it would have to essentially be command and control, and that's not exactly congruent obviously with with the capital system that that we have, which actually has been you know the most prolific in terms of in terms of drug development so now the question is you know how do you how would you know if that were really the right way to succeed. You'd be taking fewer shots on goal, but each shot on goal would give you better information. And and maybe at the end of the day, there needs to be like some compromise between between those.
0: Are there examples um, during this pandemic where drug trials have been run well?
4: Well, I'm not not sure that it's an issue of not running trials well, right? I, I mean, I think it's just that when you run a small trial, no matter how well you run it, there's only so much you're you're going to learn from it but, but I think it's it's that that uncontrolled chaos that you get from an industry full of full of companies that want to help right and, and we've created this mess you know cumulatively it's a wonderful mess of innovation truly wonderful but but it's becoming unwieldy for all of us to follow the industry and and now that it's become so vast with you know 6 700 publicly traded biotech companies that's a lot of drugs out there with a lot of leadership who are eager to to help the cause um, to, to all start kind of jostling around in the COVID development arena.
2: So Josh, you know, there's been so much hope for an antiviral uh, against SARS-CoV-2, you know, basically a pill that you could take to cure the disease in the early days or even prevent it if given post-exposure. Um, you know, here we sit, you know, more than a year after the pandemic started, you know Merck is now advancing an antiviral into Phase three for patients who are not in the hospital and there's a you know there's a smaller biotech company called Atia, which is partnered with Roche on another. Why have these antivirals taken so much longer to develop than, say, antibody drugs or vaccines
4: well so so this is it it's a great question adam um, I, I don't know one hundred percent sure, but but my uh, gestalt is that the window of intervention for a direct antiviral is extremely narrow, right? A vaccine is very long. Give it once and whatever, five months later, you know, three months later, you're, you're protected. The, the, you can't do that with a direct antiviral. We can't be all walking around taking those every single day. Um, so we need to figure out exactly when to start them and exactly when they're useful. And in in many settings, you know, as the... As the infection is being established, our own bodies are mounting the immune system, immune response. Our own bodies are the antiviral. So at some point, the incremental antiviral effect isn't going to be particularly pronounced, probably why you're not seeing much of a benefit in the hospitalized setting, because you know what else do you need antivirally? At that point, you need anti-inflammatory. And so I think the challenge is just trying to find that sweet spot of intervention, pre-hospital, uh, but but also being cognizant of the fact that most people recover on their own. Most people don't need the antiviral. And so how do you hone in on that, on that clinical trial design that gives you a clear and compelling answer? And I think we're kind of seeing that throughout all the clinical trial results.
1: So the antibody drugs were also expected to play a pretty big role in the pandemic. And of course, I think we all remember the they gave me Regeneron uh, speech from President Trump. But the treatments themselves haven't really taken hold uh, across the country, it seems. Why do you think, or are you surprised that they haven't, and what do you think the barriers still are?
4: I'm guessing it's kind of related, right? It's, it's who do you treat and when, recognizing that most people are going to do okay, we don't have supply to treat everyone, so you're going to want to focus on those highest risk individuals at the right time, in the right setting. And that, that logistically itself is, is challenging, you know, there there's also concern. I don't know the extent to which this is mitigated adoption, but concern that you know, antibodies may be fueling escape variants, right, and pressuring into into some of these these escapes, particularly you know, some of the um, maybe plasma derived or polyclonal ones, which aren't which aren't fully suppressing the virus and, and give it a chance to kind of squeak out in some new form um I'm not sure the extent to which that's been been kind of clinically validated with data, but i know it's it's been a it's been a concern so those are just some basic thoughts there
0: josh i loved um I actually wrote down the phrase you said because I felt like it just really well described the industry um you called it a wonderful mess of innovation that we've seen through the pandemic but in this note that you wrote, which I was so intrigued by, you said that um we've had a handful of successful therapeutics amongst what's felt like an endless and needless amount of noise. So do you think there are ways, I mean, you've noted that it's just a system that's really difficult. It's a disease that's really difficult because it's so heterogeneous. Um, But as we kind of come through the pandemic, hopefully with the help of vaccines and maybe try to prepare better for the next one, which could be a totally different virus. And so we have to do all of this over again. Do you see lessons that could make us take this amazing jumble of innovation that we have here in the United States because of the system we have, better organize it so we can actually get answers and maybe better drugs faster.
4: I just, just speculating, you know, a, a parallel process where maybe the government does have, have a little bit more command control over, over certain drugs, certain mechanisms that, that are most plausible. The, the reality is, is that all of this is murky. And so there, there's always going to be that element of uncertainty.
2: Josh, it's uh, great chatting with you and reading your research notes. Thanks for coming on the pod.
4: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you, uh, you welcome me back again sometime.
1: That does it for another episode
2: of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke.
1: And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you think U.S. regulators made the right call. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud@statnews.com. at statnews.com.
2: And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts.
0: See you next week.